Well, hello to you all. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here at Summit. And you know, our kids have a Christmas wish list. And I mean, maybe you have one too. Now, I can tell you with um, a fair degree of confidence uh, that not everything on their list for a nine-year-old and seven-year-old boys, not everything would be actually good for them or for our neighborhood. Things that explode or things with very large engines in them are probably not suitable for our boys. So not everything they're asking us for would be good for them or our neighborhood. They probably wouldn't be good for you or I either. But let me tell you, I want to give good gifts to my boys. I delight in that. Today we're going to look at the God who is the ultimate giver. We're going to look at prayer, but specifically we're going to look at like corporate intercessory prayer, like asking our good father for the good of others and what, what that really means for us. Now prayer, I think, is one of the most basic human instincts. People of every culture have had some desire to connect with the divine, however they understand who God is. It's an impulse to reach out to the one who is beyond. I've even spoken with atheists who admit to having prayed at times when they were facing a challenge and they simply didn't know where else to turn but to God. See, the question maybe to begin with is what if God really is like a good father to us? And what if it's true that God wants to answer prayers in a way that really is about our best, about our flourishing? We're going to dig into that today. Now, we've been studying through the book of Acts, and from the beginning, Luke, the writer, he's been narrating how the message about Jesus, of his love and forgiveness, it's been spreading and spreading out, starting in Jerusalem, with 3,000 people turning in trust to Jesus on that first day of Pentecost. And then we see it like this geographical, almost concentric circle spreading out from Jerusalem. We read of uh, the conversion of an Ethiopian man, and then of Paul, and then last week of Cornelius and his household of friends. And then at the end of, end of chapter 11, where we pick up today, we see this explosive growth in the church community north of Jerusalem in Antioch. Um, this city will become like the mission hub for the Christian movement. Now, just, just one really quick thing I think we need to point out that we need to see. Luke tells us that there are some prophets, people with a particular spiritual gift, and they come from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, one of them, his name is Agabus. We read that through the Spirit, he predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And Luke adds this, that this, this actually just came to be it. It happened during the reign of Claudius. But how do they respond to this news? Like the coming of this large-scale natural disaster event, what would they do? It's going to have serious like economic and, and health implications. One scholar notes that they, what they don't start doing is they don't start going, okay, who must have sinned? Who needs to be punished by God? They don't do that. Nor do they say, well, this must be a sign that Jesus is coming back right away, so let's get all huddled together. He, Jesus is returning. No. Nor do they look to the governing officials and begin to lay blame. Whose fault is this? Who wasn't managing it well? 
They could have, but they don't. Here's what they do. Look at chapter 11, verse 29. The disciples, meaning the followers of Jesus, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And then they decide this, who they're going to send the money with. So their response is to give generously. As each is able, it's to say who is in the greatest need at this time, like who's the most vulnerable, and then what can we do to meet those needs? Boy, I think there's something in this text for our moment now. Uh, as scholar N.T. Wright puts it, this might seem like a fairly like untheological answer to this problem. It's just practical, but it would be a mistake because this is deeply theological. He puts it like this, God has always wanted to work in His world through loyal human beings. That is part of the point being made in being the image of God or being made in God's image. And he's right, being made in God's image is a task. It's to have God's authority to care for the world, including the other human creatures within it. So now God's restored human community, the church, is to be about caring for God's world and other people within it. And so when we see people facing pain in our world, I think our question needs to be the same as those. Who's at special risk? What can we do to help? How do we serve? May we continue as Summit Drive Church to pursue the same things, to adopt the same posture that the early church had when facing a natural disaster, and that was to say, who's at risk and how can we help? To be radically generous. So we've been seeing the spread of the good news, this message of Jesus, His new life in His name. It's spreading. And God is forming for Himself this new, unified, multi-ethnic people for Himself. Yet, as is typical, in the face of great growth, there is actually painful pushback because this is a spiritual conflict the church is in. In chapter 12, we now see some setbacks. What looks actually like it's going to threaten the whole movement. A raging ruler sets to quell the new Jesus movement. But what becomes of it? And how will the church respond? And how will we respond when we face setbacks? Open your hearts and your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 12, pardon me. But first, let's pray. God, we ask that you would speak to our hearts today, that you would grow our confidence in you as we read and study, that you would meet us as you designed to. Amen. Well, let's look at chapter 12. We're actually going to read almost all of the passage together at some point this morning, so keep your Bibles open. Look at verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial 
after the Passover. Now, James, this is James, the brother of John, uh, who is one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, one of the fishermen, one of Jesus' closest friends, actually. And he's now been put to death by King Herod. Now, we've already seen opposition to the rising Jesus movement with the death of Stephen when he was killed at the hands of the Jewish community. But now this is official state-sanctioned Roman-backed power working against the Christian community. And, and, and I, I admit, it's easy to mix up all the Herods in the Jesus story. We've seen a few of them. Um, this is Herod Agrippa I. His grandfather is the ruthless Herod the Great. He was the one who tried to have Jesus killed in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, tried to kill him as a baby, I should add. And his uncle, Herod Antipas, he's the one who beheaded John the Baptist and who Jesus actually met uh, at his trial. That was his uncle, this Herod Agrippa. Though he's Jewish, he is also working with Roman authorities. And for that, he would have been more and more despised by his Jewish counterparts. And so we find out that he's actually working for political interest. He's trying to win the favor of the Jews. And so he kills James. He turns to violence to gain political favor with the Jewish folk in his territory. And now he continues to pursue the Christian leaders. He captures Peter, and his plan is really, it's the same as for James. It's a public lynching, a show trial of a bloody sort. Just notice what we see next, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. We're going to circle back to that line later, so let's just keep on listening to Luke. Verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. First, this is a maximum security situation. Chained to one guard was totally sufficient and typical. Peter is under double surveillance, and Luke wants us to know it. And second, in spite of his situation, knowing that he is facing a violent death just as James did, Peter seems to be showing no particular anxiety, like he's sleeping. This made me think of the time where Jesus um, was in the boat with his disciples, and he's sleeping in the front of the boat on a cushion, it says, and the rest of the disciples are freaking out because this is a serious storm that they're in. It's threatening to capsize the boat. And, and the disciples, including Peter, freak out and say, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? So now why is Peter at such peace on this night? I think maybe it's because Peter, well, he's seen Jesus raised from the dead. He's embraced him. He's eaten with him. He knows that death is no longer the end of the story for those who trust in Jesus, the resurrected one. Maybe that's why he can just sleep. Oh, now, I mean, we've seen that Peter is a guy who can sleep pretty well anyways uh, at key moments in the Jesus story, but 
I think there's something for us to see here too. See, later on in Acts, we're going to see this situation where Paul is going to be in prison in Philippi, and, and, and we see him singing hymns and, and just praising God while in his cell. This leads John Chrysostom, a 5th century pastor, to comment in one of his sermons. He says, it's a be- it is beautiful that Paul sings hymns and Peter sleeps. John Stott then comments, both Luke's heroes, Peter and Paul, show themselves to be equally defiant of death. They don't seem worried in the least, but maybe some of you are a little bit like well, like I can tend to be, if I'm honest, I can let the stress get to me. Maybe some of you are, are prone to let the stress get the best of you too. Now, now, I don't point this out to shame those who struggle with anxiety, not at all, but I do think Peter's sleeping might have something worth considering for all of us. Like, am I keeping my anxiousness around needlessly? Here's what we read in Philippians 4, verse 6, and seven, it says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So here we see Peter is surrounded by guards, chained to them, in fact, but his heart and mind are being guarded by something so much stronger. Let me ask, is, is your heart being guarded in the same way? Do you know the peace of God for your situation like that? Perhaps it's a relationship, or maybe it's a work situation, or, or a, a particular parenting challenge that you're facing. Maybe it's a health issue, or maybe it's a loved one that's facing a health issue. Maybe that's had your heart and mind and stomach in knots. Let's bring it to our King in deep trust, for we can rest in the arms of the one who holds the whole of the cosmos and all of history in his hands as Peter is held here. And let's rest, whatever the outcome. Now let's keep reading, verse 7. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell he struck Peter on the side and, and woke him up. I just love that kind of detail. There's this bright light, like it's shining. We'd think, that'd wake me up anyways. And, and like, I wonder, did the angel try a little whisper or a gentle nudge first? One commentator calls this a proverbial swift kick to the ribs. <laughs> it's just funny to me. But you see the angel fairly rough with Peter, and he says, get up, he said. And the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. Then the old angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing. Oh, pardon me, he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. I mean, he thought it was, he was seeing a vision, which is fair enough. He's had visions before. Verse 10, they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel to rescue me from Herod's clutches 
and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. That goes back up to verse 5, right? Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Now, this is really interesting. With more than a little touch of irony, we see that the church in verse 5, I mean, they've been praying eagerly to God for Peter, and when their prayer is actually answered with a yes, they can't believe it. Must be his angel. And by the way, in Jewish understanding, it was thought that a person's guardian angel could actually take on the look of the person that they were watching over. So they're thinking, there must be another explanation, they think. Their first response is to look for an alternate way to explain it, which is actually somehow a comfort to me. See, sometimes I've prayed for very specific things, and when God has answered with a yes, I actually find myself surprised. Like, why surprised? Well, because Sometimes God's answers to me are no or they're wait, and I don't see the answers right away. We have to remember too, yeah, Peter's rescued, but James was killed. I mean, the church was earnestly praying for James as well. Maybe Peter was part of that prayer meeting for James, right? And in God's sovereign plan, his answer was to take James home to allow his death. But this text reminds me to pray anyway, to trust anyways. I've prayed, I've prayed, I've begged God to heal people I loved. And like the church prayed for James, God's answer was different than I had hoped for. But God is still great, and He's still good. And sometimes God has answered my prayers with a big, surprising yes. Both of my parents had serious stage four cancer. My dad died of pancreatic cancer. My mom, fortunately, survived lymphoma, was able to get treated, and came through on the other side. That was a miraculous yes. And God's no was there too for my dad. But God is still good in it all. And I will seek to trust him when his answer has been no and when it is yes as well. When it's yes and I'm surprised, I'm not going to beat myself up about it. And neither should you. Let's look at verse 17. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. That was a common practice at that time. This James that Peter sends word to, it's obviously not the one who is killed, but rather this is the half-brother of Jesus 
who came to be a disciple after Jesus' resurrection, and he's going to take on a major role in the Jerusalem church. Peter wants his friend James to know that he's okay, that God answered their prayers. It's just a beautiful human touch here. And again, we have to see that the church does act in practical down-to-earth ways. Peter leaves for another place. I mean, this was a well-known house where Christians met. He wasn't going to hang around there. It would have been foolish for him to do so, for he knows he's being pursued. Now, it wasn't somehow more spiritual for Peter to think, well, God is obviously going to protect me, so I shouldn't be on the run. No, God enables his, pa- his people to make good, well-thought-out decisions. His fleeing isn't an act of distrust in God, but of using his God-given brain to make a good decision. Again, in relation to our moment with the COVID virus, our response has to be one that uses our brains. To love God with all of our minds is what Jesus tells us to do. And this means not expecting that just because we love God, somehow this makes us immune. It doesn't. No, we still need to be wise in stewarding the health of our community. Now, the final section of this chapter, it kind of ties the story together. See, it comes back to Herod, the one driven by a diabolical lust for power and the adulation of the people to the point where he will make the way of violence against God's people his norm. At the beginning of this text, it looks like he is a threat to the church to quell the spread of the word of God. But Luke tells us that Herod is having this spat with a group of people from Tyre and Sidon. Uh, They were depending on him and his region for their food supply, and so they want to get a, a, have a conversation with Herod about it. But as one commentator aptly notes, he's acting like God. He's holding the power of life or death over a group of people because of a food supply. There's more of that lust for power. But then we read this, looking at the meeting Herod agrees to with the people of that region. We read in verse 21, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Here we see the reversal of the church's situation. And Luke presents it brilliantly. As John Stott summarizes, the chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. When Jesus promises that he will build his church and the powers of hell will not stand against it, here's a picture of that. Again, Stott says it well, tyrants may be permitted for a time to boast and bluster, oppressing the church and hindering the spread of the gospel, but they will not last. No, they won't, not ultimately. And that's why our ultimate hope as God's people is not placed in who happens to be governing or in office at any given time. Yes, we do our part as citizens and vote, but the kingdom of God is not a human political movement. It resides here in the midst of the people of God who trust Jesus. 
And so we stand in confidence. Despite all the ups and downs on the mere human political plane, our hope has never been in governments, but in Christ and in Him alone. Which brings us back to where I want us to focus as our main take-home for today. I heard one pastor comment that a great book on prayer could be written from this one line alone. Again, back to verse 5. The church was earnestly praying to God for him. I agree. Let's, let's look at each of these pieces in turn. The, the church, number one, was earnestly praying. Number two, to God, three, for him. Now, we need to be clear we're not going to cover all the angles of prayer in these next moments. We're really going to be looking at what is called corporate intercessory prayer. That means the people of God gathered to pray for specific issues on behalf of others. See, prayer isn't just either, like either intimacy with God and closeness. It is that, but it's not just that. Nor is it just, well, I'm praying for certain things for the kingdom of God to come. It is that, but it's not just that. It's both and. So first, the church. Prayer, coming to our Heavenly Father, is the greatest privilege of our lives. It's actually what we're made for, for communing with God. And when Jesus teaches us what prayer is all about, we have to see that it is something that happens very personally that there would be regular daily times of meeting with God. And Jesus describes a a dynamic personal prayer life, which includes going into your room and closing the door and meeting with God in the secret place. And and he gives that instruction so that people don't use prayer as a for-show thing, to be seen by others, to look particularly spiritual. But over and over again throughout the Scriptures, we also see something else, and that is gathered corporate prayer. That's what we see in this text. The church met for prayer, especially when there's great need. Now, there's various ways that we're trying to create spaces for corporate prayer at Summit Drive. We pray on Sunday mornings together, but particularly it's our life groups. That's the place where we share our lives with each other, and then we bring those issues to God in prayer. Another avenue we have is that actually every Sunday at 8 o'clock, we have a, a prayer time prior to the Sunday service. You can join us. It's in the Summit Cafe, and so if you're coming to our service in person, please join us for that as well. Notice, too, the second thing is that the church is earnestly praying. Sometimes all that I, and perhaps you know this too, sometimes all I can muster in my personal prayer is this whimper of, God, please help because that, too, is our honest connection with God. God delights in those simple, even broken-feeling prayers, for sure. But this comes back to the corporate part, too. When we are weak, others can come alongside and pray, maybe from a place of greater strength. And that word earnest, that has a sense of committed, perhaps even a sense of desperate yeah, built into it. The word in Greek could be translated like eagerly, earnestly, constantly. There's focus. I think that's the main thing. There's focus, there's intention. I need to ask God about this. But it doesn't mean like spiritual squinting, like if only I just get somehow excited enough, God will have to answer me with a yes. No, that's not true. No, we don't twist God's arm 
that's not what prayer is. It's trusting in Him and staying committed to bringing our request to the one who can be trusted. See, Jesus warns against the idea that we somehow need to bend God's will to ours by being more excited. He says it like this, don't keep on babbling like those who don't believe in the one true God, for they think that they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, he says, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Your Father knows what you need. We need to know God, what God's actual character is like as we grow in our ability to, to simply to do this, to, to keep trusting God with, with all these things. So more on that in a moment. But see, earnest prayer is honest prayer. It's not flaky. It's not half-hearted. It's coming from a heart that recognizes our deep dependence on God and then trusting Him. See, Luke uses this word earnestly. He only uses it twice in all of his writing. This is the second time. The first time he uses it to describe Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he goes to the cross. We read in Luke twenty-two forty-four: in his anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I wonder then, is, is there a link between anguish, maybe even the anguish that the early Christians were facing? They just lost their, uh, their, their dear friend James, and now Peter is facing the same fate. Is there a link between their anguish and their earnest praying uh, and Jesus' anguish and His earnest prayer? I don't know exactly, but I know this. The reality is we will face moments of desperation the question is, what will we do with it? Will we turn it into earnest trust in God? Consider Daniel's friends. Back in the Old Testament book of Daniel during the Babylonian exile, these are faithful God followers, and they're actually facing execution at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, who had demanded that people should bow down to a statue of him or pay, ultimately. Now listen to their response to him. King Nebuchadnezzar we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And He will deliver us from it, or pardon me, deliver us from your majesty's hands. But even if He does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. These guys are kind of like calmly defiant, aren't they? Here's how one scholar puts it. Believers trust in God, which means that they know that they cannot manipulate Him to fulfill what they wish for. Trust in God implies the confidence that God will give strength to endure suffering, courage to endure execution, and the boldness to be a witness to God's power and grace right to the end. I think that's true. See, notice that line on the lips of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but even if he does not. These guys trust God for their deliverance, but they know they're not strong-arming him. Schnabel goes on, believers do not name and claim outcomes they expect God to bring about. 
authentic believers express their faith. They formulate their hopes and wishes into prayers. They acknowledge God's sovereignty to do as He sees fit, and then they leave their fate in His loving hands. That's why this next part of the text is so key. Third, the church prayed earnestly to God. Now, this might go without saying, but there is a specific object of prayer, the one we address. It's a person, the one true God who knows us and loves us, God who is great in power and who is good, like, all the time. I feel a deep sadness, actually, when I'm, you know, I'm reading uh, and I see Facebook posts or something that send things like this, sending good vibes your way, or I hope you get through this, you know, sending good vibes to the universe. I feel sadness because there's a God who actually loves, who is powerful, and who beautifully cares for those who trust in Him. So we have the joy and privilege to bring our hearts to God. And we know the reality, and pardon me, when we know the reality and character of God, Man, we address God differently. When we know His power and His love and His goodness, we approach prayer differently. God is not uninterested in what's happening to you, as though your prayers are somehow a way of trying to get His attention. No. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10.30, and even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. That's how God knows you. And then He says this, so don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Some of you, you need to hear that again today. And last, they prayed for him. The subject of our prayers includes, yes, simply praise to God for who he is, but actually raising very real needs for real people. I love that the church was gathered in earnest prayer to God for Peter. That's why we pray for people specifically by name and by need. And that's actually how we then see specific prayers answered. Because God, our Father, is more committed to your good, to your well-being, than any earthly parent has ever been committed to their child. We can ask, and we must ask God, well, as Tim Keller, a pastor, put it, for things with boldness specificity, with ardor, honesty, and diligence, yet with patient submission to God's will and wise love. You see, in the end, there is no such thing as unanswered prayers, not for us. God listens and God answers. Why? Well, it's not because we're so good that He must. Actually, the opposite is true. Why would He listen to someone like me who has repeatedly rebelled against Him? He listens to us because of Jesus. Because Jesus, God the Son, lived the life that we couldn't live. He lived it sinlessly. He lived it perfectly. He perfectly loved God, His Father, and loved others. But then by His own desire to win us back to God forever, He experiences God-forsakenness for a time so that you and I will never have to. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he prayed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For his God-forsakenness was real. As some have said, the skies were as brass to his cries that day. 
But what Jesus is doing there on the cross is bearing the pain and agony that the sin of all humanity has incurred. But that's why, and that's so, we could be free forever. And his resurrection, it shows that his self-sacrifice, his love for us poured out on the cross, it was sufficient to wipe away our sin forever, to make a way for us to come to God the Father as his very children, to come boldly into his presence, to say, Daddy, Abba, I love you, and I need you, and I have requests. We come to God through Jesus and what he's done. And so he always answers our prayer, not on account of how good I am, no, because that wouldn't be true, but on account of how good Jesus is and his substitution of his life for mine. Now you need to know that God invites all of us to respond to him in trust. Have you taken that first step of saying, yes, I need you, Jesus, to be Lord of my life, to forgive me, to make a way for me to come to the Father through you? You know, sometimes the answer that God gives to our request is a big yes and instantly. Now, the church was surprised in Peter's case, but sometimes, and maybe that's because it, they prayed for James and the answer was no. That could be reason why too. But sometimes the answer is yes, but the timing is very different than we expected or we hoped for. Like little children often don't know why their parents are saying no at least for a time, we too need to be patient that God may be answering our prayers, but not on our timeline, on His. I heard an, an analogy at Alpha last week, and I thought it was great. The presenter said, if, you know, if a five-year-old asks us if, if they can drive the car, we say, well, no. But it's not no forever. It's about timing and maturity. And so sometimes the answer is no, and we may never know the answer why this side of eternity. Surely the church prayed for James, yet James dies and Peter is miraculously released. Why? We don't know. And we have to remember that actually Peter will die violently later on in the story, but God has things for him to do still. We do know that prayer is not twisting God's arm so we get what we want. Prayer is getting us in God's presence and then trusting that he's good, and bringing all those requests before him, and just believing him that he will deal in his sovereign goodness with those things. And when we remember the grandness and the goodness of God, we have reason to trust him, even when the answer is no or wait. So my question is, what do you need to trust God with today? How is God drawing you into deeper intimacy with him personally? And for us, his people, corporately, will we be committed, like the early church, to bring those requests earnestly to God for him, for her, for that need, for that issue? May it be so. By Jesus, in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the privilege of the reality that we can come before you honestly, truly, freely, as your kids Lord, help us this week to be specific in our prayers and to trust you with them. For God, there are needs that we have 
There are those that we're praying for that they would come to know you personally as well. And maybe there's even some today who have said for the first time in their hearts, I need Jesus. I need his love. I need his forgiveness. God, may it be that they turn to you in trust and run with you in the beautiful journey that you have for them. And we pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord, who died and rose for us to make us yours forever. Amen.